Today on the Scott Radley Show on 900 CHML. Welcome back to the Scott Radley Show here on 900 CHML. Well, our friends just down the road in Niagara Falls, um, if people come to visit us here in Hamilton, chances are at some point, if they're from out of the country or out of the province, we end up down at Niagara Falls. It is one of those places that people want to see. And there are two new surveys out that the mayor of Niagara Falls, who will join me in just a second, um, one of them he is going to love, I am sure. One of them he is not going to love. The story he's going to love, Niagara Falls revealed as the world's fourth most popular bucket list landmark. Only the Burj Khalifa, that's the world's tallest tower uh, in the Middle East, the Eiffel Tower and Times Square are ahead of Niagara Falls on that list. The story he may not like, this Ontario city was just named the biggest tourist trap in Canada. Guess what that would be? <laughs> Niagara <laughs> Falls. Mayor Jim Diodati, uh, talk about a good news, bad news day. Well, yeah, thanks, Scott. And, you know, I always say, you know, you got to take the good and the bad. And and as long as they're talking about you, I guess that's the most important <laughs> thing, right? And yep. then when I look further into the, you know, reason they felt that this was a tourist trap, things like, you know, you leave the attraction and dump into a gift shop. And I thought, yeah, that's kind of how it is in every major tourist destination around the world, including Disney. So it's a good business model to take them to a gift shop where you can make some money. So, yeah. And then, you know, the other thing, Scott, I always say, if you go during the, the high season or the peak season anywhere, you can always expect it to be busier and to pay more. And you mentioned, you know, the Eiffel Tower. If you go there during the summer, it's going to be a lot busier than if you were to go there in the fall. So I always tell people, of course, if you if you want to enjoy it at its high time, you're going to have to pay a little bit more. Let's talk about, okay, since you've gone there first, let's talk about the bad news story first, then we'll go to the good one afterwards. But has there ever been discussions with you, with, with chambers of commerce, with BIAs, with anyone about looking at the overall picture of Niagara Falls with the gift shops or with the idea of tourist trap and saying, are we doing this exactly as we should be? Or is that the kind of thing you just leave to the businesses to figure out for themselves? Yes. And and of course, we do try to come with common themes. We do to do try to create membership with our groups like Niagara Falls Tourism and the Hotel Association. And we try to make sure that we've got a common branding. But at the same time, you know, and myself, I was an entrepreneur for 25 years before I got into this world that I'm in right now. And no one likes to be told how to run their business. It's free enterprise. And at the end of the day, you know, there are certain things that will help keep you on track and things like TripAdvisor. Expedia, where people have the power of rating your business and the service you deliver. So if you don't do a good job, it's going to be out there for all to see. So I think it's in everyone's best interest to do a good job, give good service, good products, and 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 be really focused on the visitor's experience. So yes, as much as we try to control the message at the end of the day, they're all independent entrepreneurs all doing the same thing. And that said, those things you just mentioned, those social media platforms where people can make comments, does it concern you that some people now, when they come to Niagara Falls, they may really want to come, as the other story we're going to get to in a second would suggest, but they are coming with the thought in the back of their head, tourist trap, because that's been put there? Well, I think anytime I'm planning a vacation or I'm going somewhere and I realize, for example, if I decide I want to go to Times Square, because we mentioned that earlier, if I go on New Year's Eve, it's going to be a lot busier and a lot more expensive than if I were to go on January the 2nd. Mm-hmm. So 
we've got to take that into account depending on where you're going. If I want to fly somewhere and I want to do that during spring break, I know I'm going to pay a lot more for my flight than if I did it a month later or a month earlier. So I think people understand when you go during the the peak uh, time or the high season, you kind of expect you're going to pay more. When I buy and, and I go to a hockey game, you know, of course, parking's a lot more expensive than when there is no sporting event. So I think most of us understand the the economic model of supply and demand. And, and it's unfortunate that people have to pay more at certain times, but that's the nature of the beast of free enterprise. All right, let's go to the other one here. The, the Niagara Falls is revealed as the world's fourth most popular bucket list landmark. Um, again, Times Square, the Eiffel Tower, and the Burj Khalifa, which I hope I'm saying correctly in uh, Dubai, yes, the world's tallest tower, are the only things ahead. Why do you think that Niagara Falls, and I mean, there's probably not a better expert or a better person asking this, what is the enduring popularity or draw of Niagara Falls, do you think? Well, first of all, it's a natural, it's a, it's a, it's not a man-made feature. This is a natural gift and it's something magical about it in so many ways. I mean, number one, it's uh, in addition to being uh, beautiful and, and breathtaking and the impact it has, it provides hydroelectric energy, sustenance. Uh, this is the place where 20% of the world's freshwater exists in the five great lakes flowing from Lake Erie into Lake Ontario. It brings us tourism, industry. It does so many great things. And I can tell you, Scott, I never truly appreciated Niagara Falls until I started to travel the world. I remember when I was in university, people would say, oh, where are you from? And I'd say Niagara Falls and they'd snicker a little bit. And then I remember I, I, it seemed odd to me. And I said, well, what's funny about that? And they said, well, I don't know. Where do you live on Clifton Hill? <laughs> and and I'd say, yep. well, no, we've got... We've got schools and churches and, and malls and plazas and parks and subdivisions like any other community, but we're so well known as a tourist draw that they don't realize. And as I travel the world, I have never yet, and Scott, I've been to a lot of interesting places around the world, including you know all over China and India, and I've been to the Burj Khalifa and, and uh, the Middle East. I've been to many neat places. I've never yet met a person that did not know Niagara Falls instant brand recognition it's seen as an iconic destination. It's probably one of the most famous cities on the planet. And most people say, one day before I die, I want to get there. And there's songs, there's poems written about Niagara Falls. It's been famous in the movies. So many celebrities have been here and political dignitaries. It's just one of those places that's magical in people's eyes. Yeah, and there is there has to be a big part of this. And, and I, you make a lot of great points about the natural fact and all the rest but there has to be a huge part of this has to be the pop culture aspect of this that it's always i mean when the office when jim and pam got married it was at niagara falls and marilyn monroe at niagara falls and that it has to be a big part of the pop culture thing that keeps it front of mind for people it uh, it is and the list goes on and on i mean from the three stooges yep uh you know it's been featured in superman so many movies have been filmed here. It's one of those iconic backdrops that you need no explanation. Even my business cards, and I, I changed them a number of years ago. I put the picture of the falls because when it's, so, it's instant brand recognition. And I mean, I've been a lot of places, Scott. People know. So as a matter of fact, some places I'll get a standing ovation just because I'm from Niagara Falls. Clearly not from anything I ever did. But, <laughs> but it's just neat how well we're received. And we certainly, I know myself, have taken for granted how fa I always say we're the Coca-Cola of municipalities because of that water going over that rock 
and there's another study coming out. And just recently, we've been we've been called world's best love landmark. Um, there was a study that said one of the top five pl- best places to live in Canada, world's most picturesque waterfall. You mentioned the the fourth most popular bucket list, and there's another one coming out, uh, best place in the world to be to see rainbows. Because every day, if the sun is out just after lunch, you'll see some of the most spectacular rainbows. Uh, see, I thought it was going to be most places, most heart-shaped hot tubs, right ahead of the Poconos. <laughs> and, and vibrating beds, yes. <laughs> Jim Diodotti, Mayor of Niagara Falls, thank you for doing this. Oh, thanks for having me, Scott. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Welcome back to the Scott Radley Show here on 900 CHML. Uh, assuming you've heard some of the news that, boy, you know, there, there's not a lot of things that still kind of make you go, wow, in this world. we've I think we've become kind of dulled to a lot of things that are pretty exceptional. This one, though, today, this was a, for me, this was a wow, learning that a Canadian astronaut is going to be on the moon mission. Now, not to set foot on the moon when the next time it goes up, but to orbit around and to get to the moon, basically. His name is Jeremy Hansen. Uh, let's talk about this with Je- Dr. Jesse Rogerson. He's an assistant professor in the Division of Natural Science at York University. He's a space guy. Jesse, how are you today? I'm doing well. I'm doing well. How are you? I am. I am kind of uh, jealous, actually, because <laughs> I was a I was a kid. I mean, I was two years old when Neil Armstrong landed on the moon, and I know they went back to the moon a bunch of times after that. But I was never of the age that I got that whole moon thing. And mm-hmm. now that they're going back, I kind of think this is one of the coolest things anyone's ever going to get to do. I That's exactly how I feel. I was born in the 80s. I, I looked at the all those moon missions from afar, right? You know, I watched the recordings. I've seen the YouTube clips. Sure. I've, I've watched astronauts uh, talk about it. I read books, but, you know, you've never, I've never was a part of it. You know, you, you, you're not really part of that fanfare. And even when I you know, watching the the videos and stuff and seeing the the pride, it was all American, right? Because the only people that have ever been to the moon, the only humans that have flown either in orbit around the moon or onto the surface of the moon are all American. And you watch it and you you can see it and you can really see the pride in their in their eyes and in the and the way they celebrate it. And so today, like I was watching the announcement this morning and you know you saw it wasn't it wasn't an American announcement because they had a bunch of American administrators there and all the NASA people, but it was a Canadian announcement too, because they had our, one of our ministers and they had a bunch of Canadian representation there. And there was a lot of uh, conversation and talk about how much of a partnership this is between our two nations. And then to see the Canadian astronaut, Jeremy, Jeremy Hansen walk up on stage to the backdrop of Canada flags under the guise of this person, along with three other humans, are going to go fly around the moon. I I fell into it. I was I was like, oh my gosh, this is what it must have felt like in the sixties and seventies. Explain if you can why we are part of this. Why are yes. why is there a Canadian who's going to be on this? Because I mean, it could have been from any country. Why us? Yeah, good question. So we go back. We go way back with the uh, the states on our collaborations in space. As soon as the Americans were flying into space, we were not short. Uh, shortly thereafter, we were jumping right into it as well. We've been flying stuff into space since the 60s. And Canada has grown in partnership with the states um, to one of the leading space faring nations out there. And one of the one of the big uh, early on things that we did was invest into space robotics. When when 
the after the NASA finished doing their uh, moon missions, they looked to low Earth orbit and wanted to build big space stations and a, and a permanent pres- presence in the in low Earth orbit. And we we immediately jumped at the chance and said, "Hey, United States, like we'll, we we want to be a part of this. We'll we'll build you some space robotics. We'll build you a big Canada arm to help you build your space." Which is station. probably the most famous one, right? That's the one it's, everybody knows. It's our it's it's on our five dollar bill, right? Like it's it's we're so we're so popular because of our our Canadian <laughs> space robotics. And that early partnership has led to a, a very deep and rich relationship with the United States to the point where we now fly frequently, or at least frequently for Canada, um, astronauts into space. They participate at the International Space Station. And so when it came next to the to the next phase of getting humans back to the moon, the United States was like, OK, we're going back to the moon. We're going to build a space station there. That's part of the Artemis program. And we want another and we not we need another robotic arm. and. Canada was right there, ready for the contract, and we're in the middle of building Canadarm three, which will be on the lunar uh, uh, space station. And along with this comes uh, partnerships with humans as well, so we can send our our own astronauts to the moon to orbit the moon. And maybe who knows? Maybe one day we'll watch a Canadian walk around you on know, the surface of the moon too. I, I was just going to say, okay, let's say let's just pretend for a second and say it was Jesse Rogerson who was being introduced today instead of <laughs> Jeremy Hansen. Are you saying, oh, this is the most amazing thing ever? Or are you saying, oh, this is amazing, but I kind of wish I was in the next group so I got to set (laughs) foot on the moon? Yeah, so to put it in perspective, Artemis 1 launched last fall. That was the first mission in the Artemis program. It was an uncrewed, unpiloted test run of all of the like the capsule, the rocket, the communications, everything. Artemis 2, which Hansen was selected for, um, is flying next fall. Uh, so 2024, and it's going to be the same mission, orbit around the moon, but with humans on board. And yeah, so you asked the question, because Artemis 3 is the one that should be putting the humans on the ground. And is if it was me, would I be saying, oh, I wish I was on the next one? You know what? If if it was me, I would. I can honestly tell you that I would be happy to be selected for any mission. <laughs> um, being able, like Hanson is going to have an incredibly close view of the moon, up close and personal, something that you and I will never see. Uh, you can, you, I wouldn't, you have to be excited for something like that. Mm. So it's, I think it was at 1972 was the last mm-hmm. moon landing. Yeah. I think if I got my year right. So we're now, right. you know, 52 years on, you would think with modern technology that everything has changed. I mean, it's not even comparable. We, we can't even talk about technology in 1972 and 2023 as being in the same universe. Mm-hmm. Does that mean that, you know, all the talk about Jeremy Hansen and the other three as being brave heroes. Yeah, they are. But is the technology for rockets going to the moon so much better now that they're, they basically have eliminated the kind of risk we saw with the Mercury and the Apollo program? That's a really good question. And it's tough to give a, a really good answer for that. Um, what I could say is, I think your intuition is, is good there in that the risk has probably come down. Uh, our ability to fly in space is much better than our ability to fly in space 50 years ago. There's no question. Uh, but there's there's another factor involved here, and that is that any small issue can quickly get out of hand. So even if... Yeah, even Houston, though we have a problem, right? That's the famous yeah. line for that same thing. Because, you know, it, it's not the same. You know, if your car breaks down on the highway, you just pull over, right? But if your car breaks down in space, <laughs> you, can't, you can't pull over, right? <laughs> yeah. So you you have this issue where a small thing 
could mean something pretty dangerous. Uh, now, like I said, the risk the risk is probably lower because we're better at it, uh, and the training is better, and our our intuition is better. You know, all of this stuff is better. But no matter what, you're still at in a position of risk and a, a place where the stakes are high, where you know big risk, big rewards, and you know that. So I, I think that they are. I think to summarize this you can still consider them to be very, very brave in what they're doing. Um, it is it is by no means a guaranteed success. Um, there's a high chance of success, but there's no by no means a 100% success rate here. Um, so they have to be brave. They have to be careful. Everybody, not just the four astronauts, but the entire apparatus has to work strong and confident to make happen. Yeah. And there's one other thing we got to run, but there's one other thing that I noticed today and I was very surprised by is I saw a number of photos of him with the other three. Now, I don't know if they were photoshopped together from pictures or what, but I also saw him standing with some other people. He's a big dude. And I was thinking, I was thinking like they're going to pick all jockey sized people because it makes the shuttle more manageable with size. He's a big dude. (laughs) You know, yeah, he's a very, he's a tall guy. Uh, an F8, F-18 fighter pilot, this guy, um, he knows how to fly. He knows how to sit in cramped spaces, I guess. Um, you know, that was an issue in the early days of the space program and the Mercury, uh, Gemini and Apollo programs. They they specifically chose short people to fit in these small crafts they were building. Uh, but I think, you know, over the last 50 years, times have changed there, too, where accommodating uh, different sizes is more important, uh, not just tall people, but smaller people as well um, and body shapes of all sizes. Uh, so. I think, yeah, he, he's definitely a tall man, um, but I don't think that's going to be too much of an issue for him. Uh, no, on this capsule. I, I expect know? that the capsule they will have ready to go will not look a whole lot like the Apollo or Mercury ones that looked like you were literally being poured into a tin can. You know, it's, it, they don't. You're right. They're they're definitely more sophisticated on the inside. But like, you know, at quick glance, they do kind of look pretty similar. <laughs> I, they have to be more comfortable, though, by they, now. I think so. Yeah. And the space, I think the spacesuits are more comfortable. The chairs are built specifically for each person um so you know there's a lot that goes into it but there you know it's a cramped space it's a it's a small space with four people for like three or four weeks yeah i I guess when you're spending however many billion dollars you can afford to custom make a chair for each person that that sort of fits within the budget uh jesse rogerson assistant professor at york university in the division of natural science Uh, we will be talking about this i am sure before this goes off i really appreciate you taking time today no worries thank you for having me You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. It is Monday, which means Don Robertson is in studio, owner of the Dundas Real McCoys and coach and general manager and president and chairman and everything else. And the guy who runs ComChoice Realty and many, many other things. And the leading, the early leader for the 2023 Dundas Citizen of the Year. I don't know what happened to the 2022, that, that, that campaign... I haven't heard how that went yet, but he's, I'm putting him down as the early leader, the early front runner for Dundas Citizen of the Year. Don Robertson, how are you? I'm good, Scott. <laughs> it's nice to be the leader at something. Yeah. Well, you know what? I mean, it's, gotta, we, it's nice to be the leader at anything. So, you know, take it. <laughs> uh, speaking of leaders, which there's no leader in this story. It's a really bad segue. Um, every NHL team now, after a few incidents that have happened in the past where both goalies got hurt. Every team now has what's called an e-bug, emergency backup goalie in the arena who is there, could be a college guy, could be a former pro, could be, 
every team has an emergency backup goalie so you don't end up in a David Ayers situation like the Carolina, like the former Leafs Zamboni driver. Uh, they got to have somebody who's a legitimate goalie who could potentially come in if your two guys somehow both got hurt. Did you hear who the Leafs emergency backup goalie was last night? No. And keeping in mind, Matt Murray did get hurt and uh, what's his name, uh, played the night before. So he should have said, I'm sorry, I can't go. The Leafs emergency backup goalie last night was Curtis Joseph. How in a game that they were already sitting a bunch of guys because they were giving a break to everyone, how did someone from the Leafs not say, we've got to find a way to get Curtis Joseph into this game? (laughs) uh, Well, I got two things for you. First of all, David Ayers used to play for the Norwood Vipers in the Allen Cup Hockey League. And the last time we played him, we beat them 9-2, and he let all nine in. <laughs> um, and I tried to get, and the guy's name escapes me now, the guy that is a practice goalie for the Leafs because they have an extra guy around to take shots and everything else, and he's a former okay. pro. I forget his name, but he said, Don, thanks, but with my work commitments, I can't commit because he'd have to be the backup. So obviously they usually don't have Curtis Joseph. They do have a former yeah. pro and everything else, and and the guy may play for the other team. Yeah, He's not just the Leafs, and I'll go back in history. Um in the old days, when they had one goaltender, or goaler, as I like to refer to them as, it, when the Leafs came to town, the Marley goalie was generally the backup. And that was when they only had one goaltender. And even when they had two, it would be the Junior A kid in Toronto or in wherever you were playing. And they're, they're, the challenge was likely in, in some less than stellar hockey markets like maybe New York or Chicago. Who knows who they had? You probably yeah. could have done the job for them then. Well, But you're right. To think that Curtis Joseph, who has got to be your age, which is young to me, yeah, he, he I don't could, think Cujo wants to go into goal. But come on. At, Did he dress? I don't know. But at a certain point, at a certain point, okay, so now you're down by a couple goals, and again, Marner is sitting, and McCabe is sitting, and Giordano is sitting – and it's getting near the end of the game. This is this is one knock I have against hockey. There's five minutes left in that game and you're down by two or three goals, whatever it was. Where is the sense of occasion or sense of whatever to say, could you imagine the coverage this league, I mean, maybe you don't need coverage in Leaf Country, but the coverage you get if you bring, if all of a sudden out of the tunnel pops Curtis Joseph to play the last five or 10 minutes of the Leaf game. That would have been fantastic dawn beyond fantastic. Unless he got hurt or gave up five and embarrassed everything. I mean. Even then, even then you're already down. It would have been a novelty without question. Think of any other sport that, I mean, now they don't all have a, you know, a position like goalie, but. I mean, imagine. Do you want to bring Joe Namath back or Joe Montana as a okay, backup? But not when they're 75, <laughs> but if they're still mobile enough. Like, let's say in five years that a team's quarterback gets hurt and they had an emergency backup. Both quarterbacks got hurt. And so for the last five minutes of the fourth quarter, out for the Patriots runs Tom Brady. <laughs> you don't think that that is 
amazing theater and great for the sport and just, you know, like. And maybe one of the worst examples you could get because you could get run over and never get up again. (laughs) Maybe a pitcher. Maybe you bring Fergie Jenkins back. Not now, but when he was 42. But you're not going to run into pitchers at a Jays game, obviously. But I get your concept. It's just, I, I and, and I got thinking about this as this was going on, as I heard, because I saw this video on Twitter of Curtis Joseph walking in, carrying his bag. And I'm like, what is this? And then I thought it was an April Fool's joke. And then I'm looking and there's respect, like respected people on Twitter, like people who cover the game saying, yeah, Curtis Joseph is the emergency backup goalie. Um, and... I was like, you've got to get him in there. But I started thinking, okay, and I'll ask you this one. Forget any circumstance where it's a goalie, whatever. Any sport, any player, who would be the guy or woman that you wish for, that some circumstance would dictate that that person has to pop back into a game for five or 10 minutes today? Who's the athlete that, you know, you know, they're not going to be as good as they were. Michael Jordan. Just for the drama of it, for the excitement, for the crowd response, who would be the person who you'd want to see step on the ice or the field or the whatever? I think Michael Jordan on the basketball court, because I don't, wouldn't want to embarrass Gretzky, but guys like Gretzky or Lemieux, who's at all the games as the owner and they lose four or five guys. And he says, well, I played a few alumni games. I'll go out and see. Lemieux's allowed to go out and get three points. Good. Good. I, I mean, Gretzky was one that immediately came to mind is like, again, there's five minutes left. And for some reason you've got an emergency backup center. I mean, it, it makes no sense, but you get the idea yeah. and, and it would, and only if it was in Edmonton yeah, or Los Angeles, maybe, but in Edmonton, if all of a sudden your emergency backup center is Wayne Gretzky, I mean, can you imagine what the, what the, what would happen in that place? It would be unbelievable. Well, Gordy Howe played, played till he was 52. I know, but he never left. So that was, yeah. that was different. Yeah. He was always there. Played, uh, played at 60, 60 years old for the Detroit Vipers. Yeah, I know that. Okay. And I played one shift, right? So yeah. that was just so he could say that he played in like six different decades or something. But um, no, I, th- I mean, I, I thought, you know, Magic Johnson running onto the floor for the Lakers for five minutes just to, you know, it, it would be the same idea. I just, it got me thinking like, who would be the, who would be the person who could absolutely generate the most, I can't believe I'm here to see this response. I don't know. Is, uh, Jordan's a good one for sure. Gretzky would be a good one. Um, who's the con- football commentator now that won a couple uh, Super Bowls? Troy Aikman? Yeah, Troy Aikman, no, the other one, the brothers. Um, oh, the Mannings, Peyton Manning. Yeah, drag one of them out of the booth to play the second half. Except I don't know that as wonderful as they were, Eli Manning won two Super Bowls with the Giants, but I don't know that he's beloved as a Giant. Uh, and Peyton Manning was an amazing quarterback who won Super Bowls for Denver. In and I think he won one for Indianapolis. But again, is it the same? Like, is any, I don't know if it would be the same. It would be the same if you're comparing to Cujo because he, he never won a cup in Toronto. But he was loved. No, no. I played, uh, I played, uh, Jimmy Ralph called me and I went up to his club this summer and played with him and uh, Mike Palmentier was in our foursome. Is that right? And the multiple surgeries he's had. Yep. And he still played after that. With Washington. No, no. I mean, this summer, I mean, after he's had a bunch of surgeries, he was still playing some old timers. Oh, okay. I said, what do you use? He's my old pads. Uh-huh. No, they. I got a pair of those. They would, they would, <laughs> they would look. 
Ridiculous. Yeah, Pop Kineski made yours, so. Um, I mean, I, again, I'm trying to think who else. Derek Jeter might be a guy yeah. in New York. And again, it wouldn't matter. Not if you're on the road, not if you're in San Diego, but Derek Jeter as the emergency backup shortstop running out of the dugout at Yankee Stadium would be a scene. It, it would be entertaining. It would be interesting to watch. They wouldn't be able to get the game in because the crowd would be going bananas and they would be, he'd be having to do 15 different curtain calls. I think Pete Rose would be a good one, but he's still suspended, so. And would Pete, and, and that's a really interesting one. That's a really, if Pete Rose was the emergency backup first baseman, and again, we're making up positions now because there's only the emergency backup goalie, but if he was the emergency backup first baseman for the Cincinnati Reds, yeah. and he came running out of the dugout at the Great American Ballpark, yeah. does he get universal love or are there those who are, Soured him. I don't know. Probably. I, I think the fans love him. Probably. I don't think there's. I don't think there's a lot of fans that are mad at Pete Rose at this point. Probably. Uh, that would be that would be a really interesting one. But yeah, it's it's a. I just I could not believe when I heard that this was legitimately the thing that they didn't find a way. You know, they had uh, one of the NHL teams earlier this year. I can't remember which one it was. Had a college goalie that they got in there for like five minutes. Edmonton. Was it Edmonton? Yeah, I think it was U- University of Edmonton he played for, and the game had, was basically decided. And, and they put him in to get the chance to be able to play. And Connor McDavid went to the coach and said, this would be a thrill of a lifetime for this guy. You know, he maybe practices with him all the time and uh, put him in, and it was. It was a but thrill of was, a lifetime. And so that's exactly what I'm talking about. That is, hockey misses this sometimes. They have opportunities to do things that are... A story you will remember very well. David Schill. Yeah, David Schill. Yeah, former Brantford Smoke player. Got called up because of a, a, a blizzard and ended up being the backup for the Leafs. That's right. They, they couldn't get anybody out of St. John's and Rick Momsley's grandmother died and he went to Simcoe and Schiller was supposed to go to St. John's. They couldn't get him out and Bill Waters called me and he said, Robbie, send him, send him, to, uh, send him to the gardens. I went, all right. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not making any warnings here. I love Schiller, but... Uh, so anyway, he's, it was great. He had a picture in, a, in the Toronto newspapers with his name on the back of a leaf sweater. And that was, uh, now had they put him in. But you know what? Had they put him in, one of two things was going to happen. He was going to get shelled. One shelled thing was going to happen. He was going to, somebody's going to have to clean his pants. Well, or he makes a few saves and it's late in the game and he he's tells his grandkids forever that yeah. I, you know, but for a thing with, with Curtis Joseph, who's already established himself, who's beloved, even if he gives up a few goals, that's not going to destroy his legacy because this is a, everyone knows this is long afterwards. He's an old timer now. Everyone knows that. I just think that it would have been remarkable. But if he he comes in and makes five stellar saves, now there's going to be a bandwagon to bring him back. Now now you got a goalie controversy. (laughs) Yeah. Well, in Toronto, that would actually make sense. Uh, But yeah, I just, I, I can't believe that someone from the NHL even was not on the phone from media relations or public relations or audience relations or something, some relations going, there's three minutes left in this game. You're down two goals, three goals. Your goalie has just pulled his hamstring. I'm telling you, he's just pulled his hamstring. Get him out and get Curtis Joseph in there. We will make every highlight Everywhere. Now, again, across Canada, you're going to, the Leafs get tons of coverage anyway, but 
what what a yeah. What an amazing story for one of your great old timers to fill in and come back at 46 or 47 or whatever Curtis Joseph is these days. I, I haven't had a chance to eat today. So I'm not, um, what happened to Matt Murray? Is he out? They didn't say they, they, they announced today that he's still being tested. You know, we'll, we'll, we'll maybe get into more Leafs later on, but for those who don't know, Matt Murray was tripped up yesterday in the game by a Detroit player who lost an edge and took him out and landed on his back or his tailbone or his head or something. I mean, I don't know. He landed on his back sort of and on his butt. Uh, this guy is either made of crystal or he's the least lucky person in the history of hockey because he just, a couple of things have been flukes, but he just cannot stay no, can't catch a break. In, the, in one piece. And I've, I've said, and I know this is, you know, Leaf fans think that this is insanity and I, that's fine. I understand that. I, if he's healthy and I'm a Leaf fan, I'm not actually worried about him coming in in the playoffs because he's got the, the background that says, you know, he might end up just figuring it out and being way better in the playoffs than he was in the regular season when he bears down and everything else. I, I, I'm not saying that's a sure thing, but it wouldn't shock me. Um, well, he's won a Stanley Cup, so. Two. Yep. Two. And the Leafs don't have any other goalies that have won a Stanley Cup since probably Ed Balfour. So. Uh, yeah, probably. Well, Kurt, uh, Ed Balfour, because he was after Grant Fuhr. Grant Fuhr would have been probably the guy before yeah. him. I, well, that's why I said since. Yeah, yeah. You're right. And before that, it was probably. Um, Did Kudrow win a cup? Nope. Uh, who, who would have been before that? Terry Sawchuck? Johnny maybe, Bauer. Maybe. It's been a while. Johnny Bauer passed away at the age of 114 and was the last yeah. guy. Yeah. No, it's, uh, there, I'm sure there were guys that in the meantime, whether it was Jim Rutherford who played briefly for the Leafs or whether it was Mark LaForest who might've got one with Philadelphia at some, I don't know what I mean. Trees might've, yep. Yeah. I don't know. So, no, he wouldn't you know have they with could Philadelphia. Have brought in? Could have brought Ralphie in from the press box. That would have, yeah, well. Look, that that wasn't going to happen because he wasn't the emergency back. I'm simply saying you had <laughs> a chance for a moment and the NHL somehow can't figure this out. And if it was a tie game, of course you don't do it. So here's something that, that, that crossed my mind and, and lots of things do. Lots of things I can't say here. Um, I'm kind of surprised and I don't know how old Cujo is, but he's got to be 50. And uh, one of the things that you would wonder about is the home team is obligated clearly to supply a backup goaler. 55. In case of an injury. Yep. You would think that there would be some kind of criteria, but if they've got a 55-year-old Curtis Joseph as the backup, I don't know what that criteria would be. Well, and he would be the backup for either team. Yes. In the event of, yes. Uh, that's, a, that's a good question too, that... Uh, um, like what's the, so when, you know, how current do you have to be? Yeah. I don't, I don't, I mean, I have no idea when the last time was Curtis Joseph had the pads on. I don't know if he's playing a lot of old timers. Maybe he's playing old timers every weekend. He's playing beer league and he's. Most of those guys, most of the goalies play forward when they're done. Yeah. Yeah. Well, let's say just a missed opportunity. Hopefully next time <laughs> and not in the playoffs. In the. 
Women's National Basketball Championship on the weekend, which I know you were watching with enthusiasm, uh, there was a controversy that broke out because one player taunted another player by when the game was out of reach, sort of following her around, pointing at her ring finger like, there's going to be a ring on here and you're not going to have it. And earlier in the game, she had made a hand gesture that the player she was taunting had used earlier in the tournament towards someone else. The question I'm asking you is not about who's right or who's wrong. That, If you want to get into that argument, go on Twitter and you can get into it all you like with a million different people about that one. Are you a fan generally of trash talk and taunting in sports? If it's really well done, yeah, I like it. Okay. Well, and what does well done mean? Being creative. Being I mean, clever. Yeah. As being, opposed to just you're an idiot. Yeah, I I did it with a, an official on Saturday night. And Were you clever? By all accounts. <laughs> Would you care to share what you said that was so clever? Well, no. <laughs> well, we had a penalty called on us and it was incidental contact and the official came over after the call and said, he may not have seen him, but if it's in its incidental contact and you knock the player down, we have to call a penalty. Three minutes later, a uh, Hamilton guy goes into our goaltender, knocks our goaltender down, knocks him out of the game, probably out of the series. And he's standing in front of our bench and I said, what about incidental contact? There's no penalties. So he comes over. So I jumped down, open the door and we're standing there having a conversation. I said, so the explanation I got, the thing that happened right in front of us was incidental contact. If a guy goes down, you got to call a penalty. He, yeah. And I said, so our goaltender went down, he's injured. He said, but your guy cross-checked him into him. I said, why don't you call a penalty on us? You can't have it both ways. If the incidental contact knocked the guy down, which he knocked our goaltender down, how he got there should not be my problem. Like, we're down 4-1 right now. Maybe you don't want to give us a penalty, but I don't understand the explanation. I said, I think this is a really good argument. And he skated away. Uh-huh. Well. Because I thought it was a pretty creative argument. And, um, and he's a really good referee. But the explanation, when you start giving out explanations, they can they can be an issue. And maybe I didn't see the play on our goalie. So I don't know if our guy deserved it. Well, this, you know what this sounds like, and I didn't see it, but this sounds like, and I, I got to tell you, it drives me nuts now. And, you know, we've, we've talked about officiating a few times in the last few weeks, and I wasn't planning to go to officiating, and I don't want to spend a lot of time on it. But the idea of managing a game is something that we hear about a lot these days. Well, is we're, you're down four to one. I don't really want to. I used to do that all the time. I hate that stuff. Well, I hate that stuff that, that if it's a penalty, it's a penalty. If it's not a penalty, it's not a penalty. And I've never understood how it is that at the end of the game, referees are supposed to make sure that both teams have a similar number of penalties. And if one team is way ahead, look, your team could be committing 45 infractions compared to two for mine. Why should I end up with the same number of penalties as you? Well, so let me answer that in a couple of ways. Um, I I used to um, make decisions based on the score to a certain extent and manage the game. I, I enjoyed it more as a referee than you would as a coach. And I'm not scared to say that to guys. I'd like you to referee it and not manage it. But it depends on the type of penalty it is. I mean, if it's what happened and a guy got pushed down but if it's, a, if it's a slash on the hand or, you know, somebody's going to get hurt mm-hmm. or it's a scoring chance, if a guy's going to let a shot go and he gets hooked, they have to be called under any circumstances. But the discretionary ones, I'm generally okay with. 
I was just making a point that, you know, if you're going to use that as your explanation yep. and it serves itself up right away. But I want to, I want to, I know you don't want to talk about refereeing all night. I've said for years, and I tell our players this, that in my mind, the refereeing's better than play. Like the, the officiating we get at our level of hockey is as good, every bit as good as the play is. And I tell our guys when they get frustrated, I said, you know, when you miss a check and they go in and score, the, the referee doesn't come over here and start yelling at you saying, how could you miss that guy? He went right by you, didn't touch him. They never yell at us. Why yeah. do we challenge them on every play? And you can't. But that was a conversation that it's it well, was a bit tricky. Managing a game, I mean, look, I, I've heard in the last couple of days since Saturday night's Leaf game, I've heard nothing but talk about, or was it yesterday's Leaf game, whatever it was, I've heard nothing but talk about how Michael Bunting doesn't get any calls from the referees, that they, he has a reputation now there. And I heard a discussion today of, well, what should Michael Bunting do to try and get back in the referee's good graces? And my answer is he should do nothing. The referee should call the game as it is played out. And if it's a penalty, it's a penalty. And if they won't do that and they're holding grudges, they should be sitting in the stands, not refereeing. That's the, this is entirely in my mind. The official's problem, not Michael Bunting's problem. And if it's and if they want to call him for something else, that's fine. Defend that call. But to somehow say, well, you know, he they're calling him based on reputation, that to me is the fault of an official entirely. That is a flaw of an official, and that official shouldn't be doing games. Just saying. Call call the penalties. And if it's a penalty on anybody, it's a penalty on anybody. And I don't care if that's Bunting or Brad Marchand who is, you know, similar type thing or, um, you know, what's his name with, uh, with the Canadians, Brandon Gallag- Brendan Gallagher, who used to play here in Hamilton for a bit, same thing. Anyway, back to the idea of trash talking though. There are guys who are great at this and women and women, but you know, like Larry Bird, Michael Jordan, both come to mind. There have been hockey players who are great at it. And half of me says, yeah, that's fun. That's great. And if it's so good... And if it's so clever, why don't we mic these guys up? Well, I think one of the one of the challenges of trash talking now is really being curbed through political correctness. Yeah, that's... there's a, there were really in the seventies and eighties there were no limits on what you could actually say on the ice. Yeah. and get away with. And now you have to be careful, or you're going to get called up on the carpet because you need sensitivity training. I agreed, and um, and I'm not I'm not um, I'm not encouraging guys to go back to the 70s and 80s and just say everything that's racist or sexist or whatever else. I'm not I'm not. But again, I think there are some guys that are clever at it. Um, oh yeah, there's no question about it. And it's and it's and it's great theater. And you're right. They do mic guys, but they can't do it live because they don't know what's coming out. Yeah, but even for, you know, remember NFL films, they're still going, but NFL films. Yeah. Back in the day, it was, you know, they would take the thing they had. It wasn't live, but they would put together stuff with the, I, I mean, the one of the all-time greatest trash talk moments I've ever heard of, and it wasn't really trash talk per se, involved Larry Bird and the story, and I've heard this told many, many times by many, many players where Larry Bird came out of a timeout and he was so confident and believed so strongly that the guy covering him had no chance and he was such a bum as a player. He says, I'm going to catch the inbound pass. I'm going on to that spot right there 
and I'm going to hit a three and we're going to win the game. Just so you know. And then he did it. And like that is, to me, that's the ultimate, ultimate trash talk. And that stuff, can you imagine if that, we, we talk about Babe Ruth calling his shot. Uh, well, that's what came to mind. And we don't really know. The, the footage is so grainy. It's a fantastic story and it's probably true, but we don't really know. There are some who say he was actually pointing at the pirates dugout, telling them to shut up because they were getting on him. That he, and you can't really see where he's pointing. Or he was calling for another hot dog. Whatever. But this would have been, I mean, already they call him Larry Legend. Uh, imagine the legend of a guy who tells the guy guarding him on camera, on microphone, what I'm going to do and then does it. That's yeah. unbelievable. I don't know. I, I don't have a huge problem with the trash talking. I just, I, I you know, or the, or even if it's not talking, uh, actions, as long as it's clever. It's, it's worth the price of admission if you can get a couple guys that are really good at it. And it's not just standing there yelling and screaming and swearing at each other. It's, right. You got to be creative. Right. It's got to be fun. I like, I didn't trash talk the referee. I was just, it was a creative conversation. Yeah. But, um, you know, the really good stuff is really good. Yeah. Justin Davis, we were playing against the Norwood Vipers and we, and we were in game seven and uh, we certainly thought it shouldn't have went seven games in our building. It's almost full. And we had some pretty good hockey teams back then. I can't remember what year it was. And, they went up three or four one. I don't remember. And Justin Davis, who wrote uh, "Conflicted Scars," comes back to our bench, and those guys are so giddy. And he said, "Relax, boys. They don't know how to win." And we went out and scored the next game or the next goal, and you could see the shoulders slumping on the bench because he got to them. Mm-hmm. The whole team. They don't know how to win because they they were so ecstatic. They were in the game seven. And I mean, that was trash talking the whole bench. Yeah. He didn't swear. JD wouldn't swear anyway, but you know, there was no foul language or anything. They don't know how to win. And he was trying to intimidate them. And then we score a goal in the next shift and then we go on to win the game. And you know, it's funny, the guys who are in, in hockey anyway, it seems the guys who are really, really good at trash talking are often the guys who end up afterwards doing stuff on TV. Yeah. Well, yeah. You got to be quick, right? You got to be quick witted, and it's all about it's. All, and so you can tell the like, timing and everything else. The guys who are quick witted. I mean, one of the apparently, and and again, I don't, you know, I never heard him on the ice, but um, one of the guys, uh, oh, what was his name, the goalie for the Leafs, who no longer does their games, but uh, Glenn Healy yep. was apparently, you know, one of the all time great guys. Jim Ralph was one of the. You know, say Ralphie would be good. He's quick. Was one, and a lot of these guys are goalies, as it turns out. Now that I think of it, but a lot of guys that are just really. Well, you think about the color commentators. You're right. There's a lot of of, of uh, goalers that uh, do that kind of thing, and uh, back catchers are great yep. analysis because they. It's interesting that I think they have a different perspective on the game, and that's kind of the relationship between a goaltender and a back catcher. But the whole game's in front of them all night. Yep. So they analyze it in a different way. And, of course, these guys are quick-witted anyway. I mean, that's got not, nothing to do with it. But the the analogy that a lot of them end up being color commentators and analysts is interesting. And the fact that you, in one sentence, refer to guys as goalers and bat catchers 
throws back to your youth during the war years of World War One. I, I mean, in the in the in 1916 when we had goalers and bat catchers. <laughs> There, you, you couldn't have probably used two more antiquated words in one sentence if I'd given you a homework assignment to come up with one. <laughs> Tweet was put up today by Jeff Passan, a, a great uh, baseball writer, and it's through the first number of games, first four days of the major league season. So it's like entirely minuscule set of numbers. But nonetheless, it was, there. you know, 50 games had been played across the leagues uh, really, really interesting numbers here. Um, first of all, and I think this has all to do with the pitch clock. This length of games you're going to talk about? Well, the first one is length of games. Last year, the first 50 games were three hours and nine minutes. This year, two hours, 38 minutes. So they've cut half an hour off the games. But that we, we knew that time of game was going to be impacted by the pitch clock. That was inevitable. That's quite a bit though. That's a lot. What's amazing, batting average... 230 last year, 245 this year, up a, I mean, I wouldn't say that's an extraordinary number, but it's definitely up, which I think, I really believe that that is, I, I would have expected that. Your, your, the batters, I think they've been their own worst enemies all these years, stepping out of the box and walking around. You want to get into a rhythm. You want to see that pitch and you want to see the next pitch quickly because you've now timed it. You're, I'm not surprised by that one at all, but uh, 2023, 2022, last year, 29 stolen bases in the first 50 games. This year, 70. Because you can only throw over twice. And then if you throw over a third time, you have to get the runner out on the base paths or else it's a balk. So if you throw over a third so time. He's advancing you, anyway. Base, well, he, he, you're not able to really hold him. So they're getting a big lead because if you throw over that third time, you better get him out. You better pick him off or else he's going to second for free. Yep. 70 stolen bases compared to 29, which I love that about so this pitch clock. Shortens the game and creates more scoring opportunities. And creates excitement. You know, the stolen base had essentially died for a long time. Uh -huh. Because why would you steal a base and run the risk of getting thrown out if we're if every team is playing the same game, which is hitting home runs. We want as many guys on base as we can. Who cares if he's on second? A home run, he scores from first, the same as if he was on third. So I just think it's, it's a, I think it's an amazing thing that we're seeing that how the game is changing just from a rule change or two, which is good, I think. Oh, it's accomplished two things. You're right. It's a very small sample size. But if that's a trend on things that are going to happen in the game, that's that's pretty cool. Yeah, no, it'll work. It'll work. It'll 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 take. It'll bring a different dynamic of people that will come to the ball game because they don't want to, they don't want to spend. And you think about it, if you're there three and a half hours, it's probably an eight hour day because right? it's going to take you up, well from you wherever got, you're coming. And you got to get there, and, yeah. and like it's it's a it's a full shift to go to a ball game. So if you can knock that part out and the mundane part of it out and create more excitement, I mean, how can that not sell? My only concern is, and you're a coach, you know this, coaches always eventually when something changes, figure out how to stifle it and send it back to where it was. There come, there will come a moment when someone yeah. will hack the system <laughs> and will be saying, oh, remember when that used to be 
Remember when the, when the NHL came out of its lockout or its strike and everybody, all of a sudden, everyone, it was all offense and there was more open space and there was no hooking and there was no trap and all. And then eventually the coaches figured out how to grind it down. Let, let me ask you this question. Yep. Um, so stolen bases are almost double. More than double. More than double, sorry. Not a math whiz. It's okay. Um, any, any, any influence the fact that they can't have a shift anymore in baseball? Uh, that could be, that could be. I think it's I mean, probably- is that a factor? Um, it could be. I think it's probably more likely as, again, that you, once you've thrown over twice- Yeah. You're basically giving the guy a running a lot start. Of di- I'm sorry. There's a lot of dynamics that have changed yep. this year. And yeah, that those could are, be. Those are three big ones. I'd have to think how the shift would affect the stolen base, but um, I think the lack of a shift is going to bring about more scoring all of a sudden. Yep. But, and speaking of scoring, as we go to a break here, um, Jose Barrios for the Jays uh, really needed a good start to this year because last year was a disaster. Uh, he's got uh, two out here in the bottom of the first with a runner on second and already has given up three runs. And has a contract that is worth more than, oh, worth all, I don't even know what it is. I was going to come up with some great simile there, but I, a lot of money. Too much? Oh, like well over $150 million left on his contract. And he can't get anybody. I might be able to get a hit off him right now. (laughs) That's not a good thing. Uh, Don Robertson, thank you for coming in as always. Thank you, Scott. And we're going to play... The Hamilton Steelers Wednesday night in the best of three championship at J.L. Greitmeyer at 7.30. And the Dundas Real McCoys got beat 7-4 Saturday night by the Steelers. They get full marks for that. And The Allen uh, Cup opens when? April 17th. There will be Clarenville, Newfoundland, Ennisville Eagles from Alberta, the Dundas Real McCoys and Hamilton Steelers, and it's going to be a great week. Tickets available RealMcCoys.ca will give you all the information you need. Thanks for doing this. Thank you. The Scott Radley Show. Weekday evenings from 6 to 8 on 900 CHML. The Scott Radley Show podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Scott Radley. Thanks again for listening, and do not forget to subscribe to this podcast. It is free. You will never miss an episode. And also, be sure you rate us and review us. Whatever you think of us, we'll take it. Thanks for listening.